Well, Mark, that's an interesting uh, psalm uh, <clears throat> because it not only fits in a metaphorical way and in, in, in a real way to Exodus chapter 1, but it, it um, in God's providence, also brings in language from Revelation 12. I don't know if you caught that, but you might remember that in, in that passage in Revelation 12, uh, when the dragon cannot get the, the uh, child, uh, he goes after the woman, and, and she is given wings to fly out into the wilderness, and then he pours out this torrential flood to overwhelm her. But the earth opens up and swallows the flood, and, and she is preserved. And it's interesting that in that psalm, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're singing, we're singing, uh, about the fact that uh, we would not have been able to overcome the flood. It would, certainly would have destroyed us, but the Lord preserved us. And so, interesting. Uh, I, I, I cannot believe you had Revelation 12 in your mind when you picked those. But, uh, but uh, as, as is often the case with God's Word, um, <clears throat> it, it all fits together. <laughs> it, it comes together in ways that you couldn't quite predict. Well, uh, this is the last service of 2019. We enter into 2020 uh, next week, and so that's exciting. And we're in the Christmas season. As you know, within the uh, calendar of the church, there are 12 days of Christmas. It's a time of feasting and celebration. <clears throat> and we're taking up, we're continuing our, our, our look at Christ in the Old Testament. We've thought about some of the birth narratives last week looking at Isaiah, and now the real clear prophetic uh, uh, a claim of the birth of Christ. Today we're going to move the story through to that next phase of, of the story immediately that we know when we think of the, the, uh, the Christmas narrative. Uh, you know, there's all these uh, uh, arguments about whether or not wise men should be in our crash, you know, in our, uh, our nativity scenes because are they there two years later and uh, so forth. But we, we generally take the story of the wise men and, and kind of join it with the birth narrative of Christ. And though it may have been some time later, uh, nonetheless, that's the, that's, that's the uh, uh, stage of the story that we want to reflect on to some degree uh, today as we consider Exodus chapter 1. So hopefully in the readings that we've had today, our Old Testament reading being Exodus 1, our word of exhortation being Revelation 12, and then our New Testament reading, uh, Matthew 2, we hopefully good things are happening in your heads as you hear the word read, and hearing it now in light of other texts, what, you, what I hope for is that the Lord uses it to make little connections uh, for us. And, oh, that reminds me of what he said over here and what was going on there. Um, <clears throat> because, again, all the Bible holds together that way. And we want to read the Bible in the Bible. We want to read the Bible with the voice of the Bible in our ears so that we're interpreting the Bible by the Bible. That's the best way to interpret the Bible. Commentaries are great, but the best commentaries are the ones that do that for us. They're the ones that point us to the rest of Scripture to help us interpret the Scripture we're reading. So we want to always be hearing the Word with the Word in our ears already. Well, this morning we come to Exodus chapter 1, <clears throat> and we've been really spending, prior to some of the birth narratives, we were really kind of walking our way through the book of Genesis. And still, we skipped over some texts that we will come back to in Lent, particularly as we think about sacrifice and preparations for the death of Christ. 
But as we continue to advance, today we come to Exodus chapter 1, and I want us to think about the context of this story. I want us to think about the battle that ensues. Now, you might not think of it as a battle, but let's not just have this narrative in our ears and eyes as we read, but let's have the grand story hovering over us and in our ears, in our hearts as we read it. And if we do so, we will hear much more than just a grumpy pharaoh who's upset about how many people are growing in his kingdom and trying to reduce the population of that, of this group, this ethnic group. We'll hear something and see something much grander happening in the story. Take Genesis 3, take Revelation 12, and we'll let that be the context for this. I want us to think about the results of the battle that ensues, and then I want us to think briefly about what our expectations should be then if this is in fact the narrative in which we live or the narrative out of which the church is birthed and the narrative out of which the church grows and uh, is called to be faithful. So let's think about the context. We enter into the story of Exodus. And as we enter this book, we're entering the what is, I think, the grand narrative of the whole story of redemption. That in God's providence, he works out the, the moments of history now and the events of history to form for us in, uh, in small fashion, right, in a real historical story moment with real historical characters, Israel, Pharaoh, Egypt, you know. Um, he works out in his, hist- in his historical providence a little microcosm of the grand story of the Bible. That what we get in the story of the Exodus is a condensation of the grand story. Now, we've seen these condensations. I, I, I mentioned to you that even in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we get a condensation of the whole Bible, right? There's darkness, and God says, let there be light. And darkness is cast out. Um, and okay, there's the whole Bible right there. Now, that's really kind of vague, but it's there. Oh, it's there. If you have eyes to see it, you know the whole story is there. Um, And we could do this in different places. But in Exodus now, in the story of the Exodus, we get the grand narrative, the meta-narrative, the behind narrative, the underlying narrative of really the whole story of redemption and certainly the story of what Christ comes to do, right? So we have a people that go down into bondage under the hard taskmaster of Pharaoh who hates them and enslaves them and desires to destroy them. But God shows up and does battle with Pharaoh, crushing him and destroying him and delivering his people through the blood of a lamb in Passover and through the amazing uh, act of the Red Sea, crushing Pharaoh, delivering his people, but not delivering them to the promised land, but delivering them into the wilderness. Here, Revelation 12, again, go back and listen, but delivers them into the wilderness where now they have a journey to undergo on their way to the promised land, a journey that will be filled with trials and temptations and real needs, like desperate needs, like water and food they will be lacking, and they're going to have enemies peppering them and fighting them, and they're going to have to trust the Lord in the most desperate of circumstances as they make their way to their inheritance, the grand promised land which they receive as they cross over the Jordan River. And 
even that land is going to have to be purged and so forth by Joshua, but they're going to enter into their inheritance. And here, here is the grand story. You can take what, what I've just said right there, and hopefully we're, we're making connections. And though we're talking about the actual historical events of the Exodus, you can see in that the story of our salvation. For as Paul says, we were slaves to our sin, but God becoming flesh came and did battle with our enemies. We thought about that last week in Colossians chapter 2. He triumphed over our enemies, making a public disgrace of them on the cross where the blood of the Lamb was shed and then brings us out, if you will, through our conversion in the waters of our baptism into the wilderness, not right into the promised land, though there are those lucky few, I suppose, who are baptized and brought right into glory. But most of us, this is not the case. We are converted and we are brought into the wilderness, into this place of sanctification, into this place of great trial, into a place where our faith is going to be perpetually tested, where we will find ourselves in great want and need, crying out to the Lord, maybe even grumbling against the Lord from time to time, maybe not you, but certainly me, and on our way to the promised land, where by God's grace we will be carried and brought through the river Jordan of death into our inheritance. This is the story. That, we, uh, that really is the grand story. So we're in something big here as we uh, get into this. Now, we won't deal with, we're dealing with moments as we, because we're not doing a study on the book of Exodus or the whole Pentateuch. But I do want you to have that. Like you should, when you read the, the Pentateuch, when you read Exodus through Deuteronomy and into Joshua, you should have those thoughts in your head. Be careful that you don't get too narrow a vision of the Bible and you're just reading this as like the story of Israel in Egypt. Yes, it's that, and you should read it that way. But you should also read it as that way, but blown out to the grand story. Be listening for things regarding this. Okay, so it's the big narrative. And as I told you, by the way, Revelation 12 which was our word of exhortation today, is also, I believe, a condensation of the whole story of the Bible. The story of Revelation 12, just briefly, because it, it, it's important for us to see it with this, because we have a, a, a dragon that's seeking to kill children. And our text, we have a monster seeking to kill children. And in the birth narrative of Jesus, we have a monster seeking to kill children. So if, if, if nothing else, hopefully we are at least the kind of readers and listeners who today in all three texts were like, I do see something in common here. If not, okay, I don't know what to say. But that's, that's okay. Uh, uh, this is a chance for you to, to, uh, to learn. And say, oh, maybe I should have heard that. What's happening in Revelation 12? In Revelation 12, you have this glorious woman. He sees in heaven a sign Right? A sign. It's not a literal woman in heaven, but this is a sign. This is a vision. And he sees this glorious woman whose head is crowned with stars, like the vision of the dream of Joseph when he saw the stars in the sky, right? The, 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 the uh, stars and the sun and the moon that bowed before him, right? The stars are a picture of Israel and the, the, the patriarchs and so forth. And so this is, this is a picture of Old Testament Israel. And she is adorned and she's beautiful. She's the chosen one of God, right? The bride of God. And she's in pain in Revelation 12 because she's about to give birth. Now, in the language of the vision, let us read that as, if you will, the whole story of Old Testament Israel. From Abram to Mary, the whole story of Israel is a story of God's bride prepared to give birth 
right, prophetically, knowing it's coming, knowing it's coming, and she has labored in these birth pangs, longing and waiting for the time when she, Israel, would give birth to Messiah, give birth to the child of God. And there, hovering around her, is a dragon, a dragon whose blood red, a dragon who is hell-bent on death and defeating the purposes of God and destroying this long-expected child. And so he's hovering there, just waiting, waiting for this child to be born so that when the child's born, bang, he can take the child. Now hear that in our story today because Israel in this story in Exodus 1 is just somewhere in the long stage of pregnancy in, as the people of God. Here Israel is personified, if you will, in a woman in the pangs of giving birth. And there, lingering in the back of the story, is the dragon, waiting, looking, seeking to destroy, even as he kills the children of Israel in this story. And the woman gives birth, we're told, in, in, uh, in Revelation 12. She gives birth, but the dragon can't get the child. The child is snatched up and taken so that the dragon cannot get his claws into him. Now, again, so much is contained within that being snatched up. Part of it is the crucifixion, which makes it look as if he did get his claws into him. But aha, alas, we know he did not and could not that in getting his claws into him on the crucifixion, he himself was crushed and kicked out of heaven. And all of that is contained in that little phrase, he's snatched up into heaven. And then on the flip side of it, then, seeing that he cannot get the woman, being cast out of heaven, no longer able to accuse the saints, he goes after the church, but he can't get the church either. The church, the church, capital T, capital C. He can't get the church She's, she, she's, she's the bride of Christ. She, she can't, he can't get to her. She's given wings and flown out into the wilderness, just as even in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh will seek to destroy, but Israel will be given wings, right? The, the, like the wings of an eagle. She'll mount up and, and be taken out by God into the wilderness, and, and Pharaoh will not be able to ultimately get her either. But in the New Testament either, cannot get the church. So what does he do? He goes after her offspring. And while he can't get the church, capital T, capital C, he can come after you. Because you are not the church. You are the offspring of the church. And that's fine. He will come and he will torment for 1260 days, which is another hard number to understand in the book of Revelation, but it means a long time. It basically means your whole life. So just take it, take it to mean that, okay? It means your whole life and the whole life of the church from now until the second coming is 1260 days in the book of Revelation. And during that time, he is going to come after you and after me. And so all of that is the background for our story. So we haven't even gotten to the text yet, but don't worry, I won't be long. Now, how does Israel get to Egypt? Well, there's many answers to that question. We could, again, address them in Sunday school if you'd like. But one is by their sin. Now, I mean, we take it as the provision of God, thanks to the faithfulness of Joseph. They're there. But why are they in Egypt? They are in Egypt because of their sin. 
They are there because they sold Joseph into slavery and he there was able to provide for them. And so because of their sin, ultimately they are able to come to Egypt and allowed to come. But don't forget, they're also there because of a famine. And is the famine sort of in some way in the providence of God, Israel sowing what it reaped? No, other way around. <laughs> Reaping what it sowed. That they, that they sin against Joseph and he's taken to Egypt and then they endure famine and they need to go to Egypt to be saved by Joseph, but then also in due time to suffer at the hand of Pharaoh. That they rebel, if you will, against the providential work of God that said Joseph is going to rise up and be the leader. They rebel against that, and that ultimately leads them to have to come and beg for help from Pharaoh. They don't trust God, so they have to go beg help from Pharaoh and praise God. God has provided, even in the midst of that rebellion, Joseph to help provide for them. But it leads to them leaning on the Pharaoh who will not always be good to them. God will always be good to them, but Pharaoh will not always be good to them. There comes a time where there's a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And again, we now, in some sense, reap what we sowed. And their reliance upon Pharaoh, even though God was sovereignly working down underneath there and in there to provide for them, relying on Pharaoh is never a good deal. And eventually it bites him in the butt. And so it does here. There came a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. That's really what I wanted to title the sermon, but it, kind of, it was too long to kind of fit on there. So, But there came a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. So that's the context. Why are they there? Well, that's why they're there. Ultimately, at the end of the day, like all the problems we get into, it's because of our sin. That's at the, at the very seed form of the whole story of the Bible. That's the problem. We rebel against God, and then we have to deal with the consequences. And yet God is rich in mercy and continues to provide for his people. So Israel is there. Now, even while they're there, God is blessing them. We're told that originally they came, there was only 70 people. But now, by the time this Pharaoh comes who knows not Joseph, that means there eventually comes a Pharaoh to whom is like, who are these people living in Goshen? We, we have these people of a different ethnicity living in one of our prime agricultural lands. Who are they? Why is this happening? He said, well, they're the Hebrews. The he Hebrews? What are they? Why have we given them such rich land? Well, you know about Joseph. Joseph? Who the heck is Joseph? And what do I care about Joseph? Get these people out of our land. I want our land back. And not only that, they're growing in number and having this huge ethnic group within our country is not wise because, hey, they can turn and side with our enemies and who knows? No, no, no. I don't want the... Joseph who? I don't know anything about this Joseph. There comes a Pharaoh who doesn't care about that story in the past and he sees this group who's growing by God's grace. They're multiplying in number, being fruitful and multiplying. If you look at the language in here, son of Genesis, Genesis 1 language, be fruitful and multiply. So there's some faithfulness going on here and they're multiplying within this foreign land. And eventually Pharaoh says, enough. A Pharaoh who knows not Joseph. He owes nothing in his mind to this Joseph who bailed them out of a big jam years ago. So that's the context. Now, secondly, the battle. And this is really the essence of the, the sermon and from which I drew the title of the sermon, The Battle of the Seeds. Well, remember, I'm drawing that title from Genesis chapter 3 because Genesis 3, 15 is the 
you know, is the orient the uh, uh, you know what do you do when you're when you uh, I, I, the only thing I have in my head right now is those old uh, you know when you would decode something you know you had the decoder ring I'm thinking about the Christmas story with little Ralphie since I just saw the movie you know and he has the orphan Annie decoder ring you know and you got to set the decoder ring to its proper you know three means X you know and then it lines up all the other things I can understand although I can decode now because I have my decoder ring and in some sense now Genesis 3 becomes a decoder ring for the rest of the Bible Genesis 3:15, that little promise the sea I will put enmity between you and the woman between her seed and your seed, he will, uh, you will, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel, is now, again, the story of the gospel, the seed form, the decoder ring, that's going to help me understand all the rest of the stories. When I look at Exodus 1, when we read Exodus 1, we don't just hear about, oh, that bad Pharaoh. Yes, he's bad. But something much deeper is going on. This is another outworking, just as Cain and Abel was another outworking of this battle of the seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the dragon. And there is going to be enmity between these two. Yes, there's little pericopes, little, little moments of peace. Yes, Israel gets to flourish in Egypt for a little while and enjoy some beautiful agricultural land and they're being fruitful and multiplying. Yes, yes, we as Americans have lived in a golden age of time where we can worship freely. No, none of us are sitting in here wondering if the doors are going to get broken into and we're going to be machine gunned down right here in this sanctuary. But there are people in the world who are. But we don't. We have this weird little time in which we don't feel the enmity so poignantly. But this is not the norm. The norm within the history of the world is enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The story of the world is enmity. The story of the world is cosmic battle. This is why Revelation is so important. Read it and say, oh, that's the story I'm living in. Because you can be deceived in a kind of golden age like ours. Yes, we feel it fleeting. But when, it, when it's fleeting away, don't think that's the abnormality. Think in some ways things are trying to return return to the way they normally are. We live in an age of cosmic conflict. It's the way the Lord said it would be until he comes and finally puts it to an end. And we get this here in this battle that takes place between Pharaoh and the people of Israel. He goes after them. Of course, the first thing he does is try to knock them down with hard labor. But even in the hard labor, they continue to multiply. So he gets the midwives and says, listen, I want you to kill all the, all the boys. They don't. Their conscience is convicted on this. They don't. They come up with some ridiculous lie to Pharaoh that the Hebrew women are not like our Egyptian women. Man, they just pop them out, these girls. You know, by the time we get there, the baby's already there and we go, there's nothing we could do. They lie. The Lord rewards them for that. There's another good Sunday school discussion. What do you think about that? The Lord honors them for this. How do we handle that? Pharaoh gets enraged by this and says, throw them all in the river. So this is the, this is the battle that's taking place. But behind this, again, we must hear Revelation 12. Because in Revelation 12, we have this woman who is Israel who's seeking and waiting to give birth to Messiah. And there's the dragon coming after her, waiting to take this child. 
Therefore, we can see in, Revela- in, excuse me, in Exodus 1, this isn't just a mere historical story. Something much deeper is going on here. The seed of the serpent is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. Right, Satan, the dragon, if you will, is coming after the people of God. That cosmic battle of Genesis 3 and Revelation 12 is manifesting itself here as he seeks to destroy the promised people of God. Pharaoh doesn't. Pharaoh just doesn't like the fact that he's got this immigrant people living in his land. Pharaoh's a pawn. Pharaoh's a doofus, you know? Pharaoh just wants his agricultural land back. But something else is going on. Right, the dragon is behind here. Again, read Revelation 13 because the dragon empowers the beast to go after the church. Right, Pharaoh's the beast, a beast. And behind him is the dragon that is trying to make war against the saints and against the people of God. Now, of course, this picture, this cosmic battle, this battle of the seeds points forward to and finds its culmination point in the birth of Jesus. Again, we want to read these things not just as as grand schemes, but as those which lay the groundwork for us understanding what's happening with Jesus. Because when Jesus is born, there too is a beast, empowered by the dragon lingering, waiting, looking, Asking, where is this child? The wise men come and they come to Herod and they say, hey, can you tell us where Bethlehem is? We, we heard that we, we know the prophecies and we know this child's going to be there and he's supposed to be king. And Herod says, oh, yes, please go find him. And when you do, please tell me where he is. I want to go worship him too. But of course, we know Herod's intent. And when time goes by and he realizes the wise men are not coming back, I've been foiled, right? Because the Lord comes to them and says, do not go back to Herod. When Herod realizes, oh, they're not coming back, he decides, like Pharaoh, I know how to deal with this, kill them all. Kill all the boys. Kill all the children. And Jesus is snatched up. He's snatched out of there. And oddly enough, he's taken to Egypt. That's sort of the ironic, that's the little twist we get in the story is rather than being saved from Egypt, he's taken to Egypt for his deliverance. And in this was, in many ways, a condemnation of Israel. It's Israel's king who has become the Pharaoh. It's Israel's king who has become the satanic figure. Like God actually has to rescue his Messiah from Israel, his own mother, in some sense, in the vision. It's a, it's a, it's a cutting, it's a cutting twist in the story as we read it in the, you know, through the eyes of Matthew, that in order to save Messiah, he had to be taken to Egypt, the historic place of enmity, the historic place of his enemies. But the nations are becoming the place that will receive him. We're in a new day, right? It's wise men from a nation afar who are coming to worship him, and, and, and he's being delivered to Egypt for safety from Israel. So things we realize, the story's being fulfilled, but in an ironic way, in a new way, things are happening that we just couldn't, as Israel, couldn't even imagine. And that really make us have to scratch our heads and ask us, what character are we in this story? Israel needs to ask itself, what character are we? What character am I in this story? It's not so simple. Not as simple as I thought it might be. But for our discussion and for our understanding right now, we need to see in the story of the Exodus the grand battle that's taking place. And it's going to heighten. 
it's going to heighten as we work toward the plagues and the Lord is going to fight back now, right? The Lord is going to stand and defend his people, but we'll have to, we'll have to get there. And Moses himself, that precursor of Christ, is going to be delivered and ironically brought right into Pharaoh's house and raised there by, Pharaoh, by Pharaoh's daughter it's herself. And he will be the one that will undermine Pharaoh. So all these ironies are just playing underneath there and they're worth meditating on and reflecting on. So we've got the context, we've got the battle that culminates in Herod seeking to kill Christ, and then thirdly, the results. What's the results of, the, of this battle? Pharaoh is hell-bent on trying to destroy the children of Israel and to destroy Israel. But ironically, what happens? The more he afflicts, the more they grow. He tries to afflict them with hard labor, they grow. He tries to kill them, they're continuing to be born. And here, again, is the pattern that's being laid out for us. The more the affliction, the more the growth. That this is how God works within his kingdom. And this is very important for us to come to grips with. Because where the church does its great growth is in the fiery furnace. It's in the state of affliction. And it's not in spite of the affliction. It is in the midst of the affliction and through the affliction and often because of the affliction that the church, the people of God, the offspring of the bride will grow. Tertullian said, the great uh, church father of the third century, said the, seed, the, uh, the blood of the martyrs will be the seed of the church. He could see it as the church was bleeding all over Rome because Rome was persecuting, right? The beastly power of Rome was seeking to crush the offspring of the bride. This is the very thing John is preparing the church for in Revelation chapter 12. Hey guys, get this narrative in your head. It's what you're going to have to endure. And as they are enduring it, and as the blood of the saints is flowing through the Colosseum and through the streets of Rome, Tertullian saw, you wait and see. The blood of the martyrs will be the seed of the church. And no doubt it was only a century and a half later that Rome fell apart and the Christian church blossomed like an amazing tree and became that which all the birds of the earth made its nest. Right? It went from a little mustard seed. So you would never have put your money on the church in the third century. You would never have put your money on the church during the persecutions and said, which of these will be around in a thousand years, Rome or the Christian church? You would never have bet on the church. It was insignificant. You couldn't see it. It's, it's being executed in the most horrific way. And Rome is the most prosperous, powerful empire the world had ever known and may ever have known. And yet, sure enough, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And by that suffering of the church, Rome ultimately is defeated, and the Christian church becomes that which dominates Europe for the next 1,000 years. And as it becomes prosperous, something happens to it. Like collecting too much manna, it goes bad. Something happens to the church when it gets too prosperous. And I think we're feeling, we're seeing the manna go bad. And we, we, we ought to reflect on that as we start to see the little pre-tremors of affliction, the pre-tremors of persecution. And I say pre, I'm not trying to be dramatic here. I mean, really like little baby tremors, okay? But as we see them in the rest of the world too, 
In some sense, we ought to think like Tertullian. Ooh, oh, what's the Lord going to do now? What's the Lord going to do? Because when you bring the rigor, when you bring the heart affliction, the Lord multiplies and he grows his church. So the results are multiplication even through the suffering. So finally, what's our expectation? Well, the expectation is this. This is the story that you and I are living in. Pharaoh hates the children of Israel. The dragon is hell-bent on destroying the offspring of the church. This is the story you live in. Now, here's what you need to know, and this, here's where we're drawing on Revelation 12, and I'll close with this. On the one hand, the church cannot be touched. She is given eagle's wings. She's taken out into the wilderness. He can pour out a torrent of flood. The earth will open up and swallow it. The church cannot be touched. You are part of something that cannot lose. You are part of something that must win and will win. That, you got to know that. that. That's really encouraging. But you also have to know that you can be touched and you will be touched. You will be afflicted. You will suffer if we are in Christ. Jesus said as much. Just as he was touched and yet through that was victorious and ultimately could not be defeated, we will endure suffering. The children of Israel had to endure suffering and the church will endure this also. We must know that because we got to grow some thick skin. We got, we got to get some courage muscles here to be able to stand and be faithful in the midst of suffering. This is the story that we are part of. Herod wants to destroy the Lord. Psalm 2, a, a, a psalm about the nations rising up against the Lord and wanting to destroy them and the, the anointed of the Lord. And the Lord laughs in heaven. And he laughs when the world comes after you. But no, they will come after you. And Exodus 1 reminds us that this is the story we are in. And I want you to hear it and to know it. That Genesis 3.15, the story of the battle of the seeds, is something we see there. We see it with Cain and Abel. We see it with Abram and Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it with Joseph and his brothers. We see it with Israel and Egypt. We see it with David and Saul and Israel and the Philistines. We see it with the church and Rome. We see it with the church and America. It's, 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 it's the world we live in. So you got to hold those two things in balance. You're part of a real battle, but you're part of a battle you cannot lose. You are on the winning side. Your Lord, your king has prevailed. He was taken off to Egypt, preserved. Herod could not touch him. And Herod passes away, and the Lord comes back and does battle in the wilderness with the real enemy and prevails over him. Satan comes three times to tempt him, to destroy him, and he cannot and even to the point of the cross, he crushes Satan, making public spectacle of him on the cross. And is raised from the dead and ascends. He's snatched up to the right hand of the Father. And there he sits in victory. That's our story. That's our story. Now, in this time between the times, we have to live in a, in a place of trial. In the wilderness. Up with real pharaohs that really want to kill you. Really want to do you in. And we've got to deal with it and be faithful in the meantime. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the story. We pray that you would help us to see ourselves in that story. Guard us from buying into other stories. Guard us from being conformed to the pattern of the world. But let these stories transform us and renew our minds by them, we pray. That we might recognize the real enemies that we're up against, the real enemies that want to destroy us. 
that we might recognize the dragon who lingers and seeks to consume, the beasts that he empowers, the, the harlot that he makes beautiful in order to tempt us, all of this, Father, to destroy us. So give us eyes to see it and give us faithfulness, we pray by your spirit, to stand, to resist, to fight by the word and by the blood that we might overcome and that we might prevail. Father, we know that we are part of something that cannot be defeated. We are part of something that cannot lose, and we thank you for it. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.